0: Hi everyone, my name is Derek Shu. Welcome to the third episode of I Pledge Allegiance, a podcast where we discuss the most interesting proposals, events, and discussions in on-chain governance. This week, we have an exciting podcast about on-chain treasuries with Hasu, Monet Supply, and Larry Sukernik. Hasu is one of the leading researchers in this space and has written extensively about many different areas and topics broadly across crypto. Monet Supply is one of the most active participants in DeFi governance today and contributes to a few protocols such as MakerDAO, Aave, and Compound. Larry is my co-founder at Reverie and is one of the deepest and most active thinkers about DAOs and governance that I know. Hasu and Monet Supply decided to write a great piece about treasuries a few weeks ago, exploring some of the misconceptions fundamental beliefs and proper ideas in terms of how to deploy them and how projects should be thinking about it. So, Hasu, what was the motivation behind writing this piece?
1: Hey, Derek. Hey, Larry. Hi, Monet. So for us, I think the motivation was um, we thought that the market was thinking wrong about treasuries. And like if you look at Uniswap, people were saying, oh, Uniswap is sitting on so much money. It's sitting on like $15 billion and other treasuries sitting on similar amounts and so you would think that they are really well prepared for anything that can happen to them, right? Any bear market that's coming up or any kind of, you know, protocol bug where they might have, have to make users whole. But when we looked a bit deeper, we saw that it's, it's almost all uh, native tokens. And you really should not look at native tokens, in our opinion, as, you know, something that's in your treasury. You should look at them the way that you would look at at stock that's basically issued, that's authorized you know in a in a traditional company but but hasn't been issued yet
0: if crypto treasuries represent authorized
1: but unissued shares
0: how does that change the the thinking behind how to utilize them
2: yeah i think traditional companies they have a concept of authorized but unissued shares which gives management a certain degree of flexibility where they can sell more shares into the market to get some resources some some more funding to run the business but then there's a limit beyond which they'd have to go get approval of the actual owners of the company, the shareholders. And that same concept kind of carries over to crypto treasuries where there's a pool of tokens that are in the the treasury, but they're essentially similar to just that authorized but unissued shares. They're not really money in the bank until they've been sold. And it's just giving token holders and, and governors a little bit more flexibility to go ahead and issue those shares if they need more funding.
1: Yeah, and I think if you think about it, like in the traditional company, would maybe issue like one percent extra shares, right? That are not part of the float. But in crypto, we are seeing something a little bit different, where the projects authorize a lot of tokens at once because they they tend to want to put a hard cap on how many tokens can exist. I think the unit token, for example, has a hard cap, so it's not it's not actually possible to mint more. So I think you just look at it as this is these are all the tokens we might ever want to. Issue, ever right? Because if if you ever wanted to do more, you would have to migrate to a new token contract. We gave a like example. I think you said something good when you say you have to sell them before you actually have some money in the bank, right? And we looked at what what would happen to the price of Uni if you try to sell as little as what was it like one percent of the tokens, and I think it would it would dump the price by like ninety percent. Um, so it really shows that you cannot. You cannot sell these fifteen billion dollars of uni, even if you wanted to. You, you couldn't even sell one percent, and you know, and like, get what they market for. Larry, you've thought a lot about the differences between crypto treasuries
0: and traditional corporate balance sheets or endowments. What's the most obvious misconception that you've run into today
3: in the work you've done with various DeFi protocols? I think this is probably not a popular thing to say, but many of the traditional corporate concepts map pretty well to the token world. And so, you know, things like the financial statements, so balance sheets, income statements, statements of cash flows, uh, cap tables, even, a lot of these things can be recreated for token projects if we wanted to do so. I think the a, a reason a lot of people don't do that is, first of all, we just don't have the necessary infrastructure to get all of this data uh, and to compile it, to issue these statements. And secondarily, you know, there's definitely some legal, um, you know, and compliance reasons for why no one has an incentive to just kind of use clear and precise language around tokens that, um, that would really demystify, I think, a lot of these concepts. And so as a result, I think it's really difficult for communities and um, and the market to really understand, you know, how these treasuries work, how these project balance sheets, protocol balance sheets actually look, the income statements. We have, you know, some of the information floating around in disparate parts um, online, but it's not really cohesive, and so the community can't really um, understand in a in a very clear way what's happening for these projects.
1: Yeah, I think I like what you said about demystifying, right? I think so much in crypto is when you you put a spotlight on it then it's not actually that interesting anymore, right? The DAO treasuries and a lot of things going on in sort of the DAO landscape, I think, fits that that bill.
0: Uh, Hasu, going back to a point you made earlier, you talked about how these crypto treasuries aren't really, quote, real Mm -hmm. until they're diversified or represented in some other asset. How do you think about the concept of diversification generally? Because some people argue that we're going to see a bear market at some point in the future, like 2018 to 2019. Prices may drop 50, 70, 80%. Treasuries should strategically think about diversifying, whether it's through governance, token holder vote, or something Mm -hmm. else. There's another crowd that believes you really shouldn't be diversifying out of your token if your project is still young and you don't have a huge amount of expenses like if your DAO isn't actively paying tens hundreds of millions of dollars annually there's no reason to increase the float of your token dump on the market and other reasons so just curious Mm -hmm. how do you think about this
1: yeah i mean i think you already touched on one very good point markets are ultimately driven by human psychology Yeah, like as strong as the fundamentals are, we can always overvalue them. And we will, Um, because that's just how, you know, the human psyche works. Um, So I think we are going to get another bear market at some point. And um, if it's anything like the previous ones, then, you know, token prices will be very depressed. There will be very few buyers for these tokens. And you don't want to get in a situation where in order to pay your expenses, in order to pay the salaries of your expensive developer teams, But also marketing expenses like liquidity mining usage mining Um, you don't want to get into a situation where you're going to have to issue new tokens in order to pay for them at a time where the token price is really depressed i think it's much better if you sell tokens now when the price is high and get some kind of stable asset like stable coins and then when the price is low you can spend the stable coins this is a risk that all projects are exposed to and the other one is sort of more project-specific risks, right? We've seen it in in, in Compound, Aave, Maker. I think all of these uh, landing protocols have had like some problem or other um, where they had to make users whole um, because some market became insolvent um, or there was some bug. And in Maker specifically, we gave this example uh, in our article where. Maker had been burning tokens, they had been using all of their revenue to buy back tokens from the market and then cancel them um, and and keeping only very little in the treasury. And then they had a big shortfall during a big liquidation cascade and they were unable to make all the borrowers whole um, who got liquidated below the, the fair prices. And then they had to ad hoc issue a lot of MKR at very low prices. So to me, this just shows that you need to be set up to cover these kinds of expenses, both the more predictable long-term ones like a bear market, but also sort of the less predictable sort of white Swan type events that, you know, we're operating like with, new, with smart contracts here and bugs can happen and you just have to be ready for it. Monet, you've
0: worked with lending protocols like MakerDAO, Compound and Aave, where if Black Swan events occur, and there's mass liquidations and the protocols become under collateralized. The treasuries themselves are actually on the hook. How should managing these treasuries differ from simpler ones, such as Uniswaps?
2: Yeah, I think with applications that provide some sort of like insurance coverage, which is kind of how I look at like lenders, they're basically promising that the depositors are going to be able to get all their, their funds back. it it does get a little bit more complicated because suddenly they have all of these really concrete liabilities versus somebody like Uniswap or a protocol like, you know, Uniswap or or Balancer or any other kind of more immutable non-insurance protocol um, where they don't really have a lot of user expenses other than just discretionary liquidity mining. Um, So yeah, I think it becomes a lot more important of a task with, protocols with application specific liability and ideally you want your assets and your liabilities to match so if you have a bunch of risk coming from you needing to pay people back die you'd want to make sure that you have some die in your treasury um, or like same with like eth loans or wrap Bitcoin you'd want to make sure that you're matching your assets and your liabilities which i think is something that other protocols need to do as well but they you know they just have maybe a little bit of salaries or something like that so it's relatively small and they can just focus on a little bit of stable coins and they're pretty much set that
3: that's a really interesting point my supply because actually you know maybe something worth for us to discuss in a little bit more depth because you know if we think of like a, a traditional um, you know bank or something where the bank will take customer deposits and then maybe invest or lend some of those deposits and earn a yield, which would be the difference between what they lend those deposits at and what they pay and pass off to customers. And that's typically called the net income margin. Um, And from the, you know, GAP generally accepted accounting principles perspective, banks would typically, you know, take those assets, disclose them as assets on the balance sheet, and then at the same time create a liability because they have to pay those depositors back. But then we take something like, you know, a compound or an ave. Are the assets there? Do you think of them as these are assets on the protocol balance sheet, or should we think of it more like a marketplace, kind of like eBay, where you know the stuff that you sell on eBay, maybe like an old laptop, that's not really an inventory on eBay's balance sheet. It's not an asset, right, because eBay doesn't have discretion over it, and so all it is is just you know <clears throat> a listing. And so potentially, you could almost view a lot of the assets on these protocols like Compound and Aave as not really um, assets. They're just, you know, non-custodial things that belong to the customer. Um, and maybe it's, it's not up to Compound and Aave to, you know, subsidize those losses and potentially create um, reserves for losses. Curious how you guys think about that.
1: Well, for one, I completely agree with your take. I think um, that whatever's in the markets in compound is not their asset. Um, they don't have any like have any kind of discretion over how they want to spend it. It follows some predictable, transparent rules that cannot be messed with. I think that's what really puts DeFi apart from traditional finance. Um, and I think it's worth emphasizing that point that these are really not there. That said, though, crypto protocols, obviously, they can be forked. Uh, they're very low modes. I think one one of the biggest modes that they have is is their brand and the trust that, that people put in it. And if a lending market loses customer funds, not maybe due to their error, but due to, you know, some buck in the smart contract, um, then I think it's just gonna be the best business decision for them to make those customers whole if they can in order to, you know, help their brand and retain the trust of those customers to bring the discussion back
0: on diversification as a theme one of the conclusions in the post is it makes sense strategically to diversify when token prices is is overvalued which i think is interesting because crypto is all about scarcity and that's one of the major memes that people adhere to whether it's for bitcoin or other tokens and i think it It's hard for people to get around the fact that sometimes it does make sense to increase the token flow, which Mm -hmm. they see as the supply, if it is better for the project's long-term. So I think that's potentially one reason we haven't seen more activity and, and large proposals in the treasury space is that it's just really controversial. And treasury management, by definition... Usually involves changing the token supply and changing the token float. So it's important to get the messaging and the narrative around why these things are important Mm. and then doing them in the right way. Do you guys have any thoughts on how projects should diversify? Is it via a straight private sale, some sort of structured product like a bond, or maybe just market sale?
2: Um, I think for projects that have earnings, they should they can start out by just retaining their earnings. Um, I think that's maybe like less controversial. Um, and it's like, I do a lot of stuff with maker, um, you know, that project earns money and it could either use it to buy back and burn, which is kind of what most people want because again, it, it improves that sort of short-term scarcity. Um, or it could save money for a rainy day, which I think, um, Given how big Maker is and um, how much it's kind of guaranteeing for its users, I think that might be more prudent. So yeah, Maker, we haven't sold tokens on the market, which I think would be a tougher political move. But I think it's a little bit simpler if you have
1: earnings to just retain it. That's a good place to start. So first of all, I agree with everything. Like small note, I think Maker has uh, minted more tokens, Um, right? Uh, For some kind of proposal to pay the... The core units. Yeah, but no, almost true. nobody knows about that.
2: That's this, <laughs> this is true. A lot of a lot of the numbers that you see are kind of cash accounting, uh, but they don't mm-hmm. take account of all of the uh, equity compensation, basically, which is substantial. Yeah. It's a lot.
1: So yeah. So I mean, I definitely, I think what Derek also said. I think expectation management is a big part of it, and for me, this was at least for me part of the motivation, also for writing this. Because I think a lot of DAOs, a lot of project treasuries are very poorly managed, and it would be very politically untenable for them to to do it better because the market doesn't want it. Of course, the market in crypto is extremely short term, um, and so listening to the market is not a good idea at all. Um, so we try to you know convince people at large, you know, try to change the narrative in the sense that people see the need for a treasury and they look at a project and look at what is this project's treasury. And if this project's treasury does not have any stable coins in it, doesn't have like 10, 20 million in stable coins, then, you know, maybe this this project is not very well prepared for a bear market or for any kind of uh, white swan events or any kind of protocol risk. Um, and so, yeah, it's basically, you know, creating the meme that, this is one of the things that you should look at when you value at a project. And I think that's a that's the first step to changing it. Then with regards to I mean, what should they do? I think it's highly project specific. Um, I like, for example, a lot what Lido did. Um, so Lido did a strategic sale that involved many good angels in the DeFi space as well as some of the top VCs. And you know, for a project like them, it just makes a lot of sense. They get a lot of they get a lot of strategic value. From selling to very specific parties and not, you know, broadly to the market, I think this probably applies to almost every project. I think like something like a public sale, in my opinion, is highly overrated. Um, I think if you are a project founder, then you should think about your investors almost like how you think about your marriage, right? So you want you want to be very picky with who you give a stake in your project. Uh, you still want it to be decentralized, but you you definitely want to be picky um, and, you know, select people on how much they can provide for you. And that probably involves some kind of, you know, private negotiation. And, you know, it will probably include some of the top angels and top VCs.
3: I really like the point you made, uh, Hasu, about a lot of token holders are really, and, and, and investors in this market are super short-term oriented. And it, it does kind of look a little like the traditional equity markets, right? Where shareholders often, a particular base of shareholders often pressure management to buy back shares. And of course, the stock price goes up because everyone's like, great, the company is going to buy back shares. And the intention for everyone is the price is going to go up in the short to medium term. What people don't say, of course, is that money could have been used to reinvest in the business and grow the business way more than a buyback could um, for the stock price that is. And I just came across, uh, I think, a, a tweet the other day where it said, you know, IBM's market cap is something like $120 billion bucks or so, and they had over $120 billion in buybacks over the last 20 years. Imagine they took that money and reinvested it in, in high-growth businesses. Maybe they wouldn't be called Big Blue anymore. They'd be something bigger.
0: And I think that's reflected on the forums, this preference for dividends or buybacks at the expense of potentially longer-term growth or incentive programs, like if you pull up any major projects forms today, on the front page there's likely to be potentially active discussion on turning the fee on or using the treasury to buy back tokens and burn them. And you don't really see as many people proposing treasury management proposals, whether it's diversification or using it to productively grow and spend it on the ecosystem. So I think we're starting to see some versions of this with things like grants programs, but overall we're still on the smallest side of things. We're talking a few million dollars a year, um, aside from liquidity mining, which again is often launched at the start of the token before governance really matters. So if we assume that diversification is good and needed, what should projects actually be spending the cash on in terms of new programs and initiatives
1: well i think i'm the 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 biggest uh proposal on sort of this in in sort of the liabilities of of a company is always going to be um the salaries right for sort of the developer team i think developers especially in crypto we are in a cutting edge field uh many developers earn seven figures um in crypto and so this adds up you know um I think uh I like the way that it's structured in Maker and Monet's, Monet can probably say a lot more about that, but very high level speaking is there is a DAO, um and, and then you have the core units. Um the core units are responsible for different parts of the business, such as protocol development, risk assessment, growth and marketing, and so on. And they get a, a yearly budget. I don't know if it's yearly or like if it's, it's if it's a biannual, but um, they get a budget approved from the DAO and then they have to work with that budget for a period of time, but they are very autonomously managed. They all have their own core unit facilitator who basically can basically run the core unit like a manager. So it is, it is not as uh, bottom up and not as, you know, flat hierarchy as it may seem. And that's really, in my opinion, a very good thing. So I think uh A like a structure like that would probably be good for a lot of DAOs where you have sort of the DAO slash the treasury, which is really just kind of the same thing, and then it gives grants uh, or like allowances, quote unquote, to um to to the maintainers of the of the protocol, right? So looking at Uniswap for example, you could have sort of the Uniswap treasury, uh it gives sort of the mandate to build the next version of Uniswap to Uniswap Labs. Um, I think if we had a setup like this, then it would be more clear what sort of the liabilities or the the annual expenses might be. But right now we don't really know, for example, how much money Uniswap Labs is burning. This is something we didn't really mention in the article, but of course, a lot of the maintainer companies have raised money um, and there's money sitting in these companies, but we have no idea how much.
0: I think that's a key point that I haven't heard discussed before. That how a project thinks about treasury management really depends on the state of the original founding team's assets. So with Ethereum, obviously the Ethereum Foundation is well capitalized, but they're relatively conservative with how they spend that those funds. They don't have a, a huge core team on the Ethereum Foundation staff, but there's a, a lot of different well-funded teams for that are contributing to the ecosystem, whether it's ETH2, staking, or other research areas. And with DeFi projects today, most are at most two or three years old, which means that if they've res- raised venture funding, they still have enough capital and runway to really not lean on community-funded contributors and and, and and operators. This will probably change over time as the protocols scale, as people start vesting, as the company starts running low on cash. It might take a long time. But I mean, that's why for projects like Yearn or Sushi that didn't raise a traditional venture round, there's been many proposals around the treasury and governance has been very active in setting up working groups and and contributors. Whereas for Uniswap, for Compound, for Aave, even um, projects that have raised some sort of venture funding, it's just been less important for now. Do you guys agree with that that viewpoint?
2: Yeah, I I, I definitely agree, and I think it's almost a handicap for projects that um, that have like a very well capitalized, um, active company that's still involved. Um, it's almost like they still have like training wheels on and it's, it's tough for the community to sort of start forming and um, sort of developing this knowledge that they need to really succeed in the long run um, versus protocols where um, like the maker foundation is pretty much closing. I I think they've mostly wrapped everything up already. Um, so like everything that maker does is now kind of in the hands of the community, which uh, costs a lot of money. I think it's you know makers operating costs just cash are like 40 million a year or more and then there's tokens on top um but uh i think it's it's kind of empowering that um they're developing all of this talent uh and all of these kind of like infrastructure in the open and in as a dao um but yeah i think it's it does make a lot of sense that you know, a lot of projects that still have the strong management company have not seen the treasury diversification push because they don't really actually see how much money that they're going to need for all these salaries.
3: I think uh, on, on this point, um, it, what we're starting to see is it's really hard to spend a lot of money productively, where it's really easy to take a treasury, diversify it into ETH or USDC or some other stable coin, but then figuring out how to spend dozens, if not hundreds, of millions of dollars in a way that is directly accretive to the project and to growth of the the protocol is proving to be a huge challenge. And I think you know, if we look at some of the, the greatest companies of our lifetime, from Amazon to Facebook to Stripe, what the management teams and founders are really good at there is really kind of capital allocation um, in a very targeted and focused way. And then the DAO case. We really haven't seen much of that yet. We haven't seen vision uh, that the community can rally around and know how to spend that much money. And so as a result, we have the inverse often, which is spraying and praying and hoping we'll find some sort of value in doing so.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you alluded to it in traditional finance There is this concept where you look at a company, you get a business as a capital allocation problem, where you, you look at every dollar that you that you have or that you could that you have access to even if it's via loans uh or raising money and you think about like how can i bet what is the best place for me to put this dollar and get a return on it and i think if you apply this lens to crypto then you see that almost nobody really looks at it that way that i mean in the case of maker um I mean, we should probably caveat that like we mention them a lot, but I think in all of these discussions they are almost like a very positive example. <laughs> but uh in spite of that, so I mean, if they if they get a dollar from revenue and they, they use it to buy back the token and they have almost nothing in reserves and they are not they are not using liquidity mining, they are not doing any traditional form of marketing. Um, I mean there are so many low hanging fruits what they could do with the money and they do the worst possible thing with it which is buying back tokens uh in a bull market and i'm like Pfft. yeah it's it's very 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 bad you know and somebody needs to go through these projects and tell them this is the wrong approach so i think that's what we try to do just give p- people a framework at least and even if they don't stick to it exactly or if they change the framework but some framework for how you think about sort of the marginal dollar and where to put it. H- Hasu, Monet Supply. You
3: know, implicit in the, in the post you guys wrote, one of the assumptions, at least one of the assumptions that I saw was every dollar should be allocated at the highest marginal rate of return. And so if you know that you can allocate a dollar at 2% or 5%, the right decision, according to this assumption, is pick 5% all day long. And of course, in traditional um, markets, that's a mental model that um, has been really prominent. Companies should allocate capital at the highest marginal rate of return. But it seems like in crypto, you know, just given the, the, the ideology, the, um, the base of, of peers that, that started this industry, it's not only about dollars and cents and potentially porting that mental model from traditional markets to crypto markets. Um, May be incorrect, or at least, um, or at least uh, doing ourselves a disservice. How do you think about these sort of assumptions and mental models for allocating capital? You know, you certainly see companies getting into like corporate social responsibility and stuff like that, and that is becoming
1: more of a thing in traditional markets.
3: Is it possible we don't have to always allocate capital at the highest rate of return?
1: You know, I'm not a romantic when i see a company that's getting into you know corporate social responsible like into social responsibility programs and whatnot then i think they do it because it's best for their business in the long term and i mean it's totally there's nothing wrong with that at all i mean the business should do what's best for the business long term and i think the thing with capitalism is if everybody does what's best for them and the rules are set up well and they are enforced well and then it just produces an overall better outcome for everyone right and I, I I don't think that the crypto space is in any way exempt from these dynamics I think if DAOs are not run for the benefit of the DAO but for some other benefit that's not long-term beneficial then I think we will create less innovation and we will create less wealth and you know just less of everything and so I really think that all of these rules that apply to traditional corporate finance should just as well apply to crypto.
3: It sounds like we should reposition the podcast to capitalism versus socialism.
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: I think the the power of crypto or part of the power is that you can hopefully like use profit motives more, um, I don't know, in more interesting ways to to really incentivize like mutually beneficial actions. So, yeah, I think, um, there are obviously more important things that we're here for than making money, but on an individual DAO basis, I think that's, it's important to keep everyone kind of focused on, um, token holder value and, um, everything else should be kind of like playing into that in the long run, like reputation, uh, creating, the right environment for your your project
1: to succeed, all of that. Yeah, I mean, I really look at sort of DeFi and crypto in general as almost like like an upgrade to capitalism because it just it becomes much easier um, to innovate, to iterate, but also to compete in the marketplace, right? If you look at at DeFi, the the protocols that we build, we already touched on this. They don't have to take custody of any assets. Um, you do there's no need to trust them with your funds they can be much leaner uh, they can be operated with much fewer people from anywhere in the world and still you know offer their business to anyone um like s- somebody sitting in india you know they can stand up a crypto bank and people from the u.s can use it and they don't have to trust the guy i mean that's just so crazy powerful in my opinion and nobody can tell the guy, no, you can't offer your product here. I mean, it's, it's almost like we are creating like a special economic zone, uh, you know, on the internet. And I think if we told people, no, you, like, you, you can't do it for profit. I think that's exactly the wrong, the wrong attitude. I think we have to say like, this is the place where if you're smart and driven and, you know, you want to innovate, then this is the place where you can make a shit ton of money. And that's a good thing.
0: And I think that reference to these different projects and DAOs as special economic zones, you can think of the individual contributor as really being able to, to pick and choose which one to be a part of without any geographical or really regulatory boundary. You're not limited by, by traditional rules or regimes. Monet, as someone that has thought about this and, and done it, right? You work on a a few different protocols. What have you found to be helpful practices for protocols that are looking to hire people such as yourself, whether it's for risk or other functions?
2: I think successful organizations uh, aren't really flat. So I've seen a lot of, a lot of protocols find success trying to like um, create, Sort of separate teams for each functional group or each part of the work that they need covered, and then there is some internal, sort of more traditional, almost organization where it's like a little tiny, uh, like consulting shop, basically, and um, working on projects. So, yeah, I think splitting stuff off into separate like sub DAOs or like smaller teams leads to a lot better organization and and just a lot more productivity. Um, I think grants are they grants programs kind of wear a lot of hats right now um and I think maybe another way that projects can succeed more is like trying to use grants programs to like incubate some of these other teams that you know have important work that the project needs so um you know for Compound or, or uh, Ave, for instance, like the grants program could incubate like a uh, developer DAO to do all of the various um, coding tasks or like review stuff that the community is proposing. Um, and yeah, I think just standing up these smaller teams will be really
0: helpful. Monet, the point you brought up about grants as sort of the first step in setting up working groups is an interesting one. It's something I've thought about a lot. I think it's easy to think about grants as sort of a, a small one-off set of, of things that protocol, that protocol contributors can work on. But when I think of a well-run, long-term focused grants program, the most high-impact thing they can do is to find, identify, and then incentivize valuable contributors to become loyal uh, participants in the ecosystem. So what, is th- what does that mean? It means letting them easily apply and receive funding, maybe a few thousand or, or tens of thousands to work on something smaller. And if they deliver and it's uh, done in a timely manner and it's high quality, give them more authority, give them more autonomy, give them a million dollars a year to set up a working group that it's that's its own separate proposal that gives them the power to hire a few people and, and make financial decisions themselves. Like that's how you, that's, that's one way to think about scaling these DAOs that I think some projects have tried. Um, and I think grants has the potential to, to do as well. Larry, you've previously run compound grants.
3: How do you think about this, this category? I think you you covered it pretty well. I mean, at the end of the day, and I'm not gonna talk specifically about compound, but just kind of projects in general. All these projects in a bull market have a bunch of money and have very few people working on making the projects bigger. And the question in my mind is how do we convert the money into people? And then the people could build really cool things. And the grants programs are just the fastest mechanism that we've been able to find as an industry to give people money test if they're capable or not, and if they are, give them full-time responsibilities to grow the protocol, the product, um, et cetera. And um, and the nice thing about grants programs, I think, is the worst case scenario is you lose all the money that went into the grants program, which is $1 to $10 million, which is not a deal breaker. The upside is you recruit two, three, four, five really good contributors that improve and grow the project. Um, by hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, and so the cost benefit is just insanely, um, you know, favorable to DAOs, and I think that's why you're seeing them make that sort of investment. It's um, it's a no brainer.
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, most projects are still spending so little that, like, the return on each marginal dollar they can figure out how to get out the door is just really huge. Um, which circling back to treasury management it's you know each each marginal dollar that they have in in savings is you know something that'll potentially be really really valuable for them when they're able to spend it later um so yeah i think it's um really powerful i think there will come a time when we start getting to the other end of kind of the spectrum where um we've got a bunch of working groups that are set up that are you know billing hundreds of thousands or, or millions of year. And um, it is pretty tough in a, in a DAO structure to really properly like manage um, and keep stuff lean and, and like efficient. Um, so I'm interested to see kind of how stuff progresses with like kind of budget creep and, and other stuff like that as projects learn how to spend.
1: Yeah, I like how you said uh that projects don't spend very much at the moment. Um I think especially for the more decentralized ones. Um it's funny that we don't really see any DeFi projects like raise a series A, raise a series B, right? Have this kind of traditional growth path where they raise money and then they spend a ton of money and when they're out of money, they raise more money, right? Um uh, but right now like we're not really seeing any of that, right? We we just don't see any of the kind of growth programs that you would expect. And Derek, you alluded to this earlier. Like, why don't we see any DeFi projects, um, you know, do big marketing um, programs or whatever? I mean, n- maybe it's not the right time because maybe their systems are not really even scalable to like accept millions of customers at this stage. But I think it's definitely something to you know to think about. Another point you mentioned, Monet,
0: is how while treasuries might be spending too little to find contributors today, treasuries are so well capitalized that over the long term, you might see this flip where capital might become a weapon and you might have many, many well-funded working groups and some of them might become sort of overpaid and some of them might be seen as unnecessary. Larry, we've talked a bit about this as well in terms of capital as a
3: weapon. Do you have any thoughts here? I think, you know, to your point, um, we haven't really seen Treasury spend hundreds of millions of dollars on anything but token-based compensation, right, which is hiring people. Increasingly, we're going to, I, I would bet increasingly, we would we will start seeing Treasury spend hundreds of millions of of Dollars, so they'll convert their treasuries into into fiat or the equivalent to purchase, you know, customers to market their brand to the mainstream in the same way that, you know, Uber and Lyft did that, um, or Amazon and all the competitors that they killed that we just don't hear about anymore, right? You can use capital as a weapon to grow market share, and you know, how to do it effectively is, is, is very difficult, right? Because you can always acquire customers and you grow users. But if they're not profitable uh, to the protocol, in other words, if you're making three bucks in the user and you're spending five bucks to acquire them, you know, that is not a good trade. If you're spending three bucks to acquire a user that will make you $10, that's a very good trade. And so, you know, these sort of things are going to start happening. These sort of models, mental models are already, I think, creeping into the market, um, but it, it's someone sort of has to move first, right? And I think it'll be one of these things where the first person that does it, everyone will imitate imitate, because if you don't, you risk losing market share to the guy who's spending hundreds of millions of dollars. And so you're sort of at the mercy of your stupidest competitor. It'll be interesting to see who goes first. And I think it's sort of a chicken and an egg problem, right? Like
0: one of the reasons why there may not be that many well-funded working groups today is because people don't understand that it's an opportunity. People don't understand that if you have valuable skills and contributions that your work might be more public and recognized by contributing to a protocol or a DAO. Once they understand that's possible and the best ways to do that in terms of basic things, like how do I set up an LLC? How do I communicate my my skills? How do I build credibility and reputation? Once it becomes easier to start actually working for a DAO, then we might see the overall bar raised um, and the number of qualified contributors increase as well. Not that there's a lack of them. I think you hear lots of people talking about, hi, I'm a Web2 developer, engineer, product person, trying to break into crypto, learning about DAO's and Web3. How do I actually get started? And when people ask me that, I usually push them towards grants, Let them look at rfps and i think the the key is to sort of use the grants as top of funnel and 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 help them make the jump full time to actually contributing to these DAOs. once that starts happening that's when treasuries can can really meaningfully deploy money and have it be 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 a good use of it right human capital is is always the, the most scarce thing in crypto separating the, the signal from the noise, and, and this is one way to do it.
2: I'd like to hop in here for a sec. I think, um, speaking of top of funnel for contributors, there's, there's a lot of uh, creative things that projects can do that really don't cost that much money as well. Um, like, uh, I initially started sort of spending more time with MakerDAO last year because they had a, um, a program through a, a system called SourceCred where it basically kind of um automatically like scores everyone's contributions on a on a shared like forum or Discord server and uh they just paid out people based on like how much they were contributing. Um and I think they you know they're only spending like ten, twenty grand a month. Um but definitely I've seen a lot of people like, you know, kind of get ensnared. Um with just like really small spend like that, so um, I think the the opportunity for uh, for like a better top of funnel experience and just more effective is
3: uh, really big for for a lot of protocols. Feels to me like no treasury discussion um, can be had without touching on compliance and legal side. Um, I'm curious if you guys had any sort of pushback on you know the 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 mental model you you use that, um, you know, tokens and treasuries do kind of look a lot like traditional securities, that any lawyers or any sort of regulators reach out and say, hey, you know, this looks like a security, smells like a security, is a security? Or do you think that, you know, just because some of these mental models apply, maybe these tokens and treasuries are not, you know, your traditional security?
1: You know i really don't know much about securities law i definitely agree that what you say is a big problem and um but it also it gets kind of tricky right i mean do you deliberately when you know how you should do it do you deliberately sort of mismanage your business or your treasury just in order to you know try to trick someone into thinking that these are not really securities um I mean, good luck. Uh, maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. Um, I think the way that I would prefer is sort of you have, I mean, yeah, maybe your token does resemble a security um, because it gives a right to, you know, cash flows of a protocol. But this protocol will be non-custodial. Um, you know, it's completely trustless. Um, and it's maintained by, you know, a very uh, distributed team, Um like, for example, in MakerDAO. And, you know, when you have all of those things, then I'm not really sure, um, even if the token um, is managed uh, like equity would be, if it would be equity.
2: Yeah, I think um, it seems like it's really common for projects to like, kind of like what you mentioned, Hasu, like almost intentionally mismanage, uh, themselves just to avoid looking like a security. Um, and I think that is a silly way to try and like fit within the legal boxes. Um, I think in the sort of like medium to long run, um, the more productive path is just take a good hard look at like why securities laws exist and like try and make sure that, your conduct and the way that you're sort of organizing and running your protocol is meeting the spirit of the securities laws. So like being transparent, making sure that insiders don't have like material non-public info that they're using to do negative things. Um, and I think that DeFi and, and DAOs, um, are not perfect in that regard at all. But I think they have at least the potential to like kind of just meet a lot of those regulatory purposes just based on being um, so sort of like naturally transparent and and, uh,
1: trustless. Yeah, that is such a good point, I think. Yeah. And I think also in the way that, you know, just markets work, it's often the company that is taking the most risk without dying um that then goes on to win the entire market um microsoft did a lot of anti-competitive practices amazon did a lot of anti-competitive practices uber did a lot of anti-competitive practices and i think if you're a crypto project and you're operating in 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 a market with a lot of network effect then i think you're better off you know managing your um your treasury and, and and you know your business properly, and you know being honest about the risk that you take, um, and all while you know still acting sort of in the spirit of the law, um, but still grow aggressively and you know make good decisions.
3: Hasu Monet Supply, question for
1: you guys: for the DAOs that you
3: track, if you were you know the CEO or a, a majority owner. What are some of the things that you would do how what are the, some of the, the ways you would spend the money that you just don't
1: see the DAO spending today that's a good question i mean for one i would look at the, look at my treasury um and i would probably start selling some tokens in a strategic sale i would probably not do it on the market because i generally don't value you know having sort of random investors very much i mean as harsh as that sounds um i want to be very picky about who I have in my project, um, and so that's the way that's the approach that I take. And then I build, you know, a significant treasury of stable coins. Um, I think that would be the first part. Um, if I have, if I have, a, you know, any kind of buyback program or dividend program, I would stop that immediately. Um, I would definitely sort of expand the grand section. I really like the discussion that you guys had about, you know, the function of the grants program as sort of top of the funnel, you know, to to, to, to almost like to onboard new contributors. Um, I mean, and it meaningfully also serves to decentralize your operation, right? I think I think the goal for every DAO should be to have a setup like Maker does, um, where you have different core units that have their own responsibilities and they are they are ma- that are managed uh, in a lean way that is not that has a hierarchy, right, that works, but they are reporting to sort of some kind of central point. Um, So, yeah, those are probably some of the steps that I would take. And then definitely be ready to, you know, also spend on growth, you know, to buy customers um, because nobody else really seems to be doing it it right now. And um, to me, that seems like a good approach. Curious what what you guys think.
2: Yeah, I agree on... Uh, needing to sell some tokens, uh, sell some of (laughs) their native tokens to get a little bit more diversification in the mix. Um, Probably most projects, once they have a sense of, you know, what their salaries look like and what their real expenses look like, you'd probably want at least a year or two worth of expenses just saved. Um, I think... um, Paying for customers is probably worthwhile for most projects. I think projects need to think about making sure that they're able to like sort of advance with the ecosystem as like different scaling solutions uh, come come to market. And it's it's not something that just solves itself like deploying on L2s or or you know, different like bridging mechanisms. So I think trying to like kind of future-proof protocols operations and make sure that they're they're really still advancing with the industry is
3: also money well spent Hasu, to your point uh, about being selective about your token holders it does seem like you know your project is only good as as good as your token holders where if your token holders are a greedy bunch who want to make money in the short to medium term they would never uh, vote for a treasury sale right because that directly depresses the price of the token but if you have long-term, Uh, token holders who are really looking for optimizing growth over the many, many years, Mm -hmm. you would naturally do that. And so certainly in the DAOs we've been working with, you you do see some token holders that are always against diversification just because of the short-term price impact. I think we do have some examples,
0: though, where some communities recognize that this isn't the right way to do it. And I mean, it happened with Wi-Fi about a year and a half ago, where core contributors weren't being being compensated enough and they were actually leaving to start working on other projects and Wi-Fi was basically suffering uh, a brain drain of sorts where a lot of the core devs were leaving so the community created a proposal and voted to create a bunch of Wi-Fi out of thin air I think it was almost 20% um, new supply um, which represented hundreds of millions of dollars to create a core dev fund to 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 fund ongoing core devs and make sure that there was an, an incentive to to leave. So I think some communities do recognize the importance of treasury diversification and a well capitalized um, treasury. But I think it's an educational process. It takes time for, for for people to understand, even sometimes more sophisticated token holders. So I think, I mean, Hasu's your guys' post, this podcast, other content, I think is part of the process to, to chat through these dynamics and, and figure out why does it make sense? How did, how do we do it? it? And some of these other key questions.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely agree. It's an education problem. And that's why you also see that projects that had di- to directly suffer from the impact of bad treasury management are sort of on the forefront of, you know, trying to innovate and trying to do a slightly better job. YFI at this point is definitely a good example. Um, You know, any kind of, quote unquote, fair launch project definitely um, has a much harder time because they start off with zero treasury. And I mean, yeah, it's sort of, it used to be seen as almost like a gold standard for projects uh, for some time because... It has that sort of like a proof of work like quality where nobody, you know, got any coins below market, but it really does not set up a project for success to do it that way. I think people really underestimated that at the time. And now, I mean, sort of we're not really seeing this approach anymore because it doesn't make a lot of sense. And it, it it works well if you have sort of a cryptocurrency, right, or a crypto commodity, but it, it does not. That's why it's so important to look at these these DeFi projects as businesses, because then you don't accidentally trick yourself into thinking that scarcity uh, and a fixed supply and so on would actually be a benefit to the project. No, I think they are actually, uh, they they only heard it, right? They don't have.
2: I think urine is just a, a really interesting um, sort of case study on like, market psychology and, and treasury management because, um, yeah, they, so they minted more tokens for their dev fund a while ago. And then since then they've been, uh, they're, they're sort of like financial strategy. They call it buyback and build, um, where they've been basically like buying back some urine tokens, uh, from the market, but actually for, for much more of their revenue, they've just been like holding it in stable coins and just building up reserves. So believe they have maybe around like 30 million in stable coins, maybe more even, um, that they've just kind of like saved over the past maybe eight months or so. Um and the market does not seem to be <laughs> does not seem to be appreciating it. Um you know Wi-Fi token has um kind of been flat pretty much the whole year. Um and I think it's just really interesting to think like in a lot of ways, this, this project might be um, doing a lot of things right. Um, if mm-hmm. there was a bear market tomorrow, I don't think Gearn would need to sell any Wi-Fi for years. They would be able to just operate you know, kind of indefinitely. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I just think it's interesting that um, on like the project level and sort of at the level of like high discourse, I think people are getting it a little bit, but then um, the market is still not... Um, sort of appreciating sound management.
1: You know, you're making such an important point. And I think if any product, if any like people working at these protocols listen to this, then I would say don't be discouraged by, you know, the market being dumb. And like a project like Yearn is very well managed. Um, like simple tokenomics don't mean, you know, that they're unattractive or anything. But the, the market is just like hands down, very stupid about it. Um, you see this with Maker as well. I think projects should resist sort of the siren call of adopting some kind of very short-term narrative-driven upgrade, quote unquote, upgrade to their token model that introduces some kind of ponzenomics or whatever, just because it's currently en vogue. Um, I think they should stick to the solid fundamentals because, in the long run, over a multi-year time horizon, that's what's going to pay off. Um, so yeah. Just keep building, and you know don't don't fall for it in my opinion uh, up till now, I
3: think that we we had a really good kind of theoretical discussion of treasuries and diversification and the mental models to even apply these concepts with you know just for the listener who's more tactical right what would you recommend projects do should how many years of runway should they sell their tokens for and have that cash cushion? Uh, Should they sell for ETH? Should they sell for USDC, diversified baskets? How how should teams and projects think about how to actually tactically diversify their treasury?
1: I mean, first of all, don't sell for ETH. I think if you sell with the purpose of diversification and you're selling for ETH, then congratulations. I mean, you just tricked yourself. I mean, ETH went down 90, what, 94% or what in the last bear market? Um, you know, just buy stable coins. Um, I get it. If you're worried about, um, censorship, you know, from a company like circle, uh, then, you know, buy a basket of, of stable coins, um, buy something like rye. Like if you don't use it, then it's actually fine. Like I, I think for people who want to use it as money, it's not useful because it doesn't have a pack, but if you're just holding it, then it should be fine. Also, there are, there, there are things that you can do with USDC. Um, you can put it in compound and there it's sort of, you know, sitting in the same contract with everybody else's fund. So they cannot really censor you. Um, I think just some of these techniques, I mean, would work, but I would definitely, you know, encourage people to uh, only uh, have stable coins in their treasury.
2: Yeah, I think... Um... It's tough to say exactly how much is enough, but um, I think on a, on a lower limit, you probably want at least a year uh, worth of like what you expect your expenses to be. Seems like that's that's pretty pretty safe baseline. Um, that there there will be a year period sometime soon where you really don't want to be selling your tokens. Um, okay. And then I think for applications with specific risks, um, you know, a lot of TVL that they might be. Like covering for bugs or lending protocols, um, you know, just try and make make your your best possible judgment about you know how much that might cost you, and put money aside for that as well, um, because hope for the hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. And then I think the only other tactical thing I would say is that. Um, productive assets it's kind of like a meme like oh every every asset should always be doing something in DeFi to like stack yield on yield um I think projects just need to like think of like whether that really aligns with what they want out of these treasuries um like if you're a lending protocol do you want to be putting your reserves in a lending protocol when the risks of that money um you know Having losses, and then your protocol having losses might be correlated. Um, so yeah, I think there's there's just a lot of um, a lot of people are excited about earning yield on their treasury when that's not really the purpose. It's not the primary goal.
1: I'd have one more sort of tactical advice, maybe for projects, because I'm really surprised. I mean, many projects do yield farming. Um, they offer some kind of incentive, um, and I think more and more people. I think it's mostly actually people from like uh, Web two and like TradFi who look at deal farming and say, "Oh, this is just customer acquisition and a new dress, right?" Um, but if you understand that, then it becomes really surprising. So why does everybody pay in tokens? Like, why do we have to like constantly issue more tokens, including when the price is depressed, in order to pay, you know, to to, to buy new customers? Why why can't we pay people in stablecoins or in you know some kind of other asset? And I think. You should really like factor in the, the sort of any kind of liquidity mining you do you should just look at it you know as customer acquisition slash marketing costs and then think whether it's not better to have like one big strategic sale uh raise a lot of stable coins and then you know spend those stable coins to buy the customers maybe it's cheaper for you i don't know i mean in some cases definitely people might have like a good expectation of the project and then they might, they might you know value it more. But I think on average, um, it doesn't feel right to me that nobody pays any incentives in stable coins.
3: It is kind of crazy, right, to see projects uh, essentially issuing dozens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in, the, in these liquidity mining programs without you know, running any sort of experiment like pausing the liquidity mining incentives and seeing who sticks around. Um, it's almost like some projects and not all of them, but some projects are really afraid of what they'll see.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, you could write 10 articles about this. I think liquidity mining is one of the dumbest things right now um, that's happening in crypto. Um, why? Because I think for me, the biggest reason is there's absolutely no like strategic thinking behind it. Like, You should start from thinking, so what do we want out of this? Like, What's some kind of target liquidity that we want in our protocol? for example, and once you've reached that, you know, there should be no further rewards, right? You only pay to get you to the goal, but not, I mean, what's the point of that being like $50 billion in some lending market and 95% of that is sitting idle, or, you know, incentivizing liquidity pools and, you know, then you, you have like 1% uh, in sort of volume on that uh, liquidity. It, it just doesn't make any sense. You, you pay all that money for nothing. And you pay it to the worst possible people instead of, instead of giving your tokens to you know, good strategic investors and long-term holders who are aligned with you, you give it to you know, those who will dump it at the first moment. It's just it doesn't make sense from a lot of different angles, really.
3: So, so it's, it's a really good point and maybe a conversation for us to have. Do you think that these projects are you know, the ones who are paying these crazy amounts in liquidity mining awards? Are they stupid? Are they actually not thinking this stuff through or are they doing it for other reasons?
2: I think um, there's some who, I don't know. I think uh, maintaining like relevance is kind of paramount. So if you're not like the market leader in a lot of these segments, um, you're kind of in a a position where you need to pay rewards. I'm I'm thinking of like a lot of... um, lot of stable coins other than like kind of the top three um you know Dai, usdc usdt um they're kind of stuck paying rewards because you know they need it to remain relevant um so yeah i think there is there's a lot of cases where people wouldn't like what they see if they took them all away um it's difficult to think of how how do you dig out of that um i think they'll end up probably needing to spend on a lot of other things like business development and uh, integrations and and other stuff that'll kind of give them more sustainability.
1: Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, I'm not sure if I would call it stupidity, but I definitely see a lack of strategic thinking. Um, I mean, the decision-making is just really immature still um, in this market. And I mean, to me, it just feels like people think, or these projects think that, you know, Creating tokens and spending them on liquidity mining doesn't have a cost, but when you does look when you look at it like customer acquisition and and you could pay like in stablecoin equivalents or something, then you really start to look at it like a cost. And um, I think if 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 more projects adopted sort of the theory of you know putting each dollar to to its highest yield and looking at these protocols as capital allocation problems, then I think a lot of the current mispractices would, you know, stop pretty pretty soon.
3: The game theory of it is also fun too, right? Where if there's 10 projects that are all paying, you know, all doing the same thing and all paying the same in liquidity mining rewards, who's incentivized to be the first one to stop, right? Not really anyone. And so there does need to be some sort of mutual cooperation for this thing to, you know, for all of the projects to at the same time stop paying liquidity mining incentives. But because these are... Decentralized communities with really difficult consensus building processes. Maybe this process of stopping these crazy payment schemes would take far longer than it would in traditional markets, where maybe people do take meetings and say, okay, this is getting
1: silly. You know, that's why I'm really against any kind of flat hierarchy. Um, I think what you really need is delegation and you need these, uh, you know, these working groups basically um, that are individually, that have individual like hierarchies. Um, and then you can say, well, we have this sort of marketing, uh, this, this, uh, this unit that's responsible for you know, growth and marketing. and it has a, a budget, including for liquidity mining. but you know it's responsible that this money actually buys us what we think it does and it can stop it at any time, it can tune it, it can run experiments. And I think if you're not doing it in this way, then you're probably not doing a very good job
0: totally agreed on the importance of working groups or sub DAOs or pods, whether it's something like Wi-Fi style or Maker DAO core units. But I think it, another important question when, when, when operating them is who do these core units report back to? Is there an optimal process? We saw recently with Maker there was some controversy around some of the contributor onboarding and offboarding processes, where Rune, the founder of MakerDAO, created a proposal to try to offboard a contributor. And there was a bunch of controversy whether he was he had too much power or influence. We don't have to go into, into that proposal specifically, but curious if you guys have any thoughts on the best way to evaluate these different working groups and ensure that they're Hitting their goals, whether it's specific KPIs or or subjective metrics, and then allocating more power to the ones that are performing well.
2: I uh, I know in a lot of uh, like traditional company orgs, they'll have like a financial planning and analytics basically section of the company, or like audit or something like that. Um, I think pro- projects will get to the point where um sort of some of this like uh reporting and like management is going to be like almost a job in itself uh <laughs> in a certain way and and i think maybe there's an argument that like there will be like DAO hr uh or like other other ways to like try and um try and like make some of these responsibilities and like um and stuff more smooth um but Right now it's, I think maybe that's one reason why we haven't seen so many working groups form is just because it's uh, such like an unfamiliar chain of command where you kind of report to this like amorphous group of like the DAO uh, and it's tough Mm -hmm. to tell who actually has what stakes and and what level of power and influence. So, um, so yeah, I think it's, it's definitely still TBD.
1: You know, I think so. I really like the concept of the working groups slash core units, and I think they should they, they should report back to the token holders. But the token holders should sort of you can have almost like a board of directors that has you know some big token holders, but others like some whales and you know founders and so on. But then others can just be you know delegates who represent many different smaller holders. Um, So I think projects should probably um, set up delegation if they haven't. And these delegates, to me, I think we have seen this recently in Maker. Maker now has sort of a delegation system, but they have not done a very good job at it because um, the delegates, uh, there was no compensation plan for them. It was just said, well, you know, once you're a delegate, you can go ahead and make a proposal to the whole DAO in order to get paid something. Um, and, you know, that's that's not a very attractive process. So I think, um, you know, the delegates are ultimately um, the core strategic decision makers. So we have to, you know, evaluate other proposals and make a, a lot of key financial education decisions and so on. And so I think ultimately you want to have um, delegates who get paid, you know, an executive salary. There's also this,
3: awkward thing for a lot of DAOs where if you want to be a contributor or a full-time employee, essentially, you have to draft a proposal in public and say, here's how much I want to get paid over X years. And then, you know, if you're not performing, you sort of have to get fired in public, which is even more awkward. And DAOs are having to figure out how do we even, you know, get people to apply if they're worried about getting fired in such a public manner.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Even the public, even your salary being public, to me, that would be a reason not to work for a DAO, to be honest. Like they need to find a way to, you know, to fix this. In the core units, only the total allocation is public. So you you know what is the budget in maker of each core unit, but you don't really know what each person working there does because it's sort of at the discretion of the facilitator and the unit, um, you know, to decide the salaries, Um, which is good because, I wouldn't know my salary to be, to, you know, to be known on the forums and so on and associated with my name. Mona, you
0: recently worked on proposing and setting up a risk DAO for Ave. Did you take inspiration from the MakerDAO core unit? Were there any things that you changed from, from the core unit model?
2: Yeah, I think it's, uh, broad strokes, like sort of similar, um, maybe just because Ave is um, maybe like, I would call it like a little bit younger in the sort of, or like newer to the journey of sort of decentralization. Um, it's, it's, again, it's going to end up wearing like a lot of hats where um, the stuff that the Ristau would be covering would be kind of like three different teams at Maker. But I think over the long run, it'll probably develop where um, if there are, specializations then you know stuff might spin off and and kind of be its own independent um autonomous team but yeah i think that's you know in broad strokes it's it's kind of similar like you have like one person who kind of handles coordination and like making the proposal to governance and sort of like being the project manager for the team and like helping give it that structure um but then, other than that, it, it kind of like operates autonomously, and then just like has that that line of communication with the
0: DAO. I think going off that, another interesting area to discuss is which working groups are most important to, for your project. The most important ones probably are risk and smart contract audits, right? Where we see that we saw this happen with with Compound recently. There was a governance upgrade that wasn't properly reviewed, and resulted in a in tens or, or maybe hundreds of millions of dollars um, being siphoned out of the, the comptroller. And likewise, for, for other protocols, if risk management is poorly implemented or monitored, then that's also a potentially existential level event if there's black swan things that happen. So I think those are two of the obvious things that protocols can and, and should spend money on and and sort of give political and financial power to. Do you guys think there's any other ones that that make sense for certain projects?
2: Lido has a like a BD team, a growth team, uh or at least like a sort of a leader that the, the DAO had hired to handle that. I think Maker has a, a growth team as well and and maybe certain other projects. And I think that's seems to be really valuable and, and like a really good value for money um to at least have somebody who's like thinking strategically about how how do we advance this protocol and and connect with more users. And I think there's an interesting also kind of like a choice of like, do you want to actually have this team sort of like in-house like work for the DAO or do you want to contract with um a company that that provides these services um to a bunch of organizations potentially, so uh, I kind of think of this like chain link um, is kind of like a off the shelf Oracle solution that you can plug into stuff, um, or you could choose to have a team and like roll your own system. Um, and same with like Gauntlet, for instance, they they offer like consulting services. So I think that's an interesting like decision for, for DAOs for each of these teams.
1: You know, I would say um, maybe financial planning slash accounting unit. I think it's just, to me, it would be very important that I know exactly uh, how much money I'm spending and what's the return, you know, on on this money that I'm spending, right? Because you you cannot do the framework that we talked about if you cannot actually measure, you know, the impact of your decisions. And so that would probably be the one for me.
3: Yeah, I'd agree with
1: pretty much everything
3: that was said earlier. And, you know, companies, you know, here we call it working groups or pods. Um, companies call it divisions or groups, right? Same sort of concept, just different lingo. Um, but every company, depending on the stage and and uh, the actual business they're in, to your point, Derek, probably will want to sequence the, um, have, have different sequences for the sort of divisions they set up, right? It would be a little bit premature to Hire someone to do BD or sales if the product's not launched yet, or if the product is not really tested in the market and consumers are saying, we want to buy it, right? Typically, you'll want to hire those sort of folks after the product is clicking in the market so that they know how to sell it, right? And and who to sell it to. Um, So I think every DAO is probably different, but for the larger ones that already have some sort of product market fit, certainly growth and marketing and FPA folks. those sort of groups come to mind as as core priorities, and and not to name any names, but you know, if you peruse some of the forums uh, for some projects, you will see stuff like, "Hey, let's form a treasury management group," and then you're like, "Wait, but you guys have no users; like, no one's using your project," and then you're going to create the first working group you're going to create is one that manages an internal hedge fund. That seems a little bit premature. Uh, so stuff like that is just kind of silly in this market.
2: Yeah, I think that's. That's actually really a great way to put it. Like managing an internal hedge fund, uh, like versus whatever the protocol's sort of real purpose and and maybe like where their edge is. Um, I think it's it's kind of like a natural thing. It seems like in in business and particularly with crypto, because it's like sort of less um, experienced operators, but. There's like a feeling that more is always better. So like once you once you get off of like, and you're you're willing to start selling your tokens, then I feel like people just want to accumulate assets. And like, you know, having having too big of a treasury is also, um, you know, not necessarily the right approach. Um, because yeah, your edge might not be in you know investing. You might be better off returning that excess capital to your token orders. And letting them invest the way that they want to, Um, so yeah, I think uh, protocols running investment
3: funds, you know, it's it's not necessarily the right approach. I guess it's way easier to run an investment fund than build a product that people actually want to use, huh? (laughs) In this market, at least.
2: (laughs) I guess I'd be curious if any of you guys have like thoughts on like um, like treasury swaps, where like two DAOs will like trade their, their governance tokens for each other. It seems like we've been, there's been like some of that, uh, happening recently.
0: I mean, yeah, I think doing it as part of a deeper integration or a deeper working relationship between projects makes sense, right? Like if you have an AMM and they want to allow their users to trade with margin and they want to partner with a lending protocol to, to, to provide that easily, then it makes sense, it could be a win-win. If it's just being done for, quote, diversification purposes or sort of optics reasons, then again, probably not the most high impact thing that you should be spending time on. Um, So I think like a treasury swap alone, not enough, but as part of a broader vision and strategy could be a great move.
1: Yeah, I'm in the same camp for diversification, doesn't make any sense. But I, th- I think the future of DeFi, like the next two to three years, is going to be super apps. So um, I think we will unlock some further benefits and, you know, cost savings and whatnot by some apps working very closely together. Um, you touched on one. Definitely, I think for exchanges, it makes a lot of sense to collaborate with um, lending markets such as Maker, Compound Aave. I'm very surprised we haven't seen any of that happening, but also sort of private relays uh, like flashbots or fair ordering protocols like Chainlink, right? I think um, when you look at like for example the individual components of an exchange, then you see um, a lot of things that actually could be outsourced and improved just by collaborating more closely uh, with an existing protocol. So I hope um, that we will see more of that in the future, and yeah. I think maybe in the next two or three years.
3: It seems like a lot of the the token swap proposals that I've seen, they're not really um, they're not really clear on what benefits this would provide. And you know, basically, I think the benefits would be either strategic alignment or financial investment and upside, which is how most companies think about this sort of stuff. And if it is the strategic alignment that you're seeking. You not only do you need to make the investment, you probably need to get the communities and the leadership of these protocols on board as to why we want to tie the two DAOs or two projects together. And to date, it doesn't look like we've seen any of that. We've just seen sort of,
1: "Hey, let's swap tokens for the sake of swapping tokens." Yeah, what have we? Have we seen it by the way? I, I would, wasn't really sure. Derek said it's happening right now. I haven't seen anything.
2: It's. Maybe most common in like kind of the more social tokeny like DAOs, which are a little bit different than than protocol DAOs. But um, but I think there's maybe maybe is like an example of of a project that's really pursuing this at scale, where they they have a ton of assets available to them, and they've they've been kind of like swinging them around and uh, seeing who they can partner with
0: yeah Faye balancer is one that I think is is being actively discussed, and that one, I think is an example of one that has deeper strategic value for both protocols and 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 value. Um, I'm not totally clear on 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 all the details, but I think there's a, a few of these being worked on, but definitely more under the radar at this moment. There's a lot of teams now thinking about building tools for treasuries to help them diversify earn yield hedge how do you guys think
1: about this category broadly i mean i would say that on how a bunch of um projects that are trying to compete you know to manage treasuries on the behalf of daos and protocols i think um it's probably not the right approach, you know, to outsource this. I mean, if we, if you stick to what we said many times in the show that, um, a, a business is capital allocation problem, then how do you outsource this? Um, I think you have to first learn how to think about this, you know, and do it yourself. And then later when you exactly know what you want, you can find someone who takes over specific elements from you. Um, but I don't think there are any one-size-fits-all solutions, and that's all we are seeing right now. And so, this is, in short, I would say this is way too core to your business to outsource it to somebody else.
2: I think there's some interesting, like, tools um, that that have been introduced maybe in the last year. Um, uh, Uma maybe is like the best example of this, but kind of like a, it's almost. Uh, like a debt like instrument uh they have this thing called range tokens where um it's kind of a complicated structure a little bit but basically if if uh your token price stays around the same value uh it pays out just as if you had borrowed money um so it's it's kind of like debt and then it has like a, a call option so it's i guess it's like a convertible bond um projects, you know, if they need to have more, more cash, more stable coins and reserves, um, maybe that'll be a good option for, for some of them, um, to, to try and raise capital that way, rather than just directly selling their tokens. Um, and then I know, uh, ribbon finance, they have like this, uh, sort of structured products where they, they sell call options on a certain asset and they, they just, uh, As an example, they made a product for uni tokens. So, you know, Uniswap, if they wanted to, they could put their uni tokens in there and then collect like a call selling premium um, from that. Um, I'm not sure whether that's really a great product for for treasuries, but I think it's at least interesting and it um, might be politically more palatable because you're not selling tokens directly at the market.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's at least interesting in the sense that you're sort of selling high and buying low. Um, but overall, I would say uh, rather stay away from like the more complicated products. Um, I think there's a, there are a lot of easy things to do right for now. And then I think when you exactly know what you're doing, you can look at the more complicated ones, but you really don't need any kind of structured products uh, or very complicated strategies in order to you know runaway managed protocol at like this.
0: So this has been an awesome discussion. I mean, we've spoken about a a bunch of different topics in the treasury landscape from diversification to spending to protocol level risk, to buybacks and dividends. I think there's a a, mu- a few major takeaways. that that project founders and operators can have, such as diversification probably does make sense for for most projects at at certain points. The specific size or amount is different. Another one is the biggest expense for these DAOs is human capital and incentive and growth. And this could be individual contributors, different working groups. If you want to get into specifics, there's different functions that are more important at certain times generally DAOs should be aggressive about incentivizing and onboarding people. But it sounds like before sort of being aggressive about it, projects really need to focus about where am I actually at with my product, which strategic skill sets are, from a capital efficiency standpoint, most effective in helping me grow over the long term, um, using the treasury to do sort of blind uh, liquidity incentive programs, probably not the best use. It could still work, but with a more strategic element. And yeah, I think lastly, there's a lot of different models and ways in terms of how do you spend this money? And I think we're still really early. You can borrow concepts from traditional companies and traditional concepts, but in terms of how these working groups are structured and how they're sort of compensated and how that's done, I think, yeah, it's just consistently iterating on that model and using some of the existing tooling, but also potentially room for, for new ones. Um, this has been an awesome discussion, guys. Hasu, Monet, Larry, thanks for taking the time today and looking forward to hopefully chatting again soon in a year and and seeing what kind of updates and progress people have made on the treasury side.
1: Yeah, let's do it. Thanks for having us. Yep. Thanks for, for having
2: us on.